Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today, my guest is my dear friend, Cindy Wigglesworth, who I have known and worked with for many years in the integral world. Sister Cindy is the author of SQ21, The 21 Skills of Spiritual Intelligence. She is the president of Deep Change. You can find out more at deepchange.com. And she is a teacher to me, particularly in the reckoning that we are having as a country regarding race and, and the work she's done there, I th really think is, has a lot of the pieces of what we need to have next. So here's my conversation with sister Cindy Wigglesworth. That you're really quite the presence on Facebook and you are in several integral worlds and you have your pulse on things and I don't, I just haven't. Right. And I, I'm just curious, what are you seeing? So, you know, Facebook is one slice of reality. It's not Twitter, it's not Instagram, it's not TikTok. So the people who tend to congregate on Facebook seem to like a longer conversation, at least in the groups that I'm engaged with. And I'm not interested in sharing recipes and things like that. So those are not the kind of things you'll find me presencing in. But I love integral and spiral dynamics and politics, of course, and evolutionary consciousness. Like, are we going to survive ourselves? Are we going to grow up? Those are the questions that are most important to me. And for me, a big piece of that has been this sort of stew that we're in. It's like we're in this pressure cooker right now, which has the potential to pop us to second tier, also has the potential to allow us to regress and do all kinds of ugly, nasty things and wipe ourselves and other species out. So I am, for the first time in about four or five years, gaining a little optimism that we may have had enough of our shadow eruption and yeah. projection and yeah. ugliness that had to come out. I mean, somebody had to play the role of Trump. Nobody yeah. can play Trump better than Trump. Yeah. Trump has brought forward into our awareness the profoundness of our flaws. And if we can see mm -hmm. that and not just blame him for it and own the pieces that are ours, then I think we'd have a chance to grow up. Wow. Well said. Thank you. I sometimes think of it as, is, are we done with Trump yet? Yes. And, and then sort of the shadow side of that is, is, is Trump done with us yet? Right. <laughs> I think we, we have, we've grown enough and seen enough. It's like one of the ways I, I gauge this is mm -hmm. I look at how quaint my hatred for Mitt Romney and John McCain were when they yeah. ran against Obama. <laughs> right. You know, it's like all of a sudden brothers, you know. <laughs> right. we could, all these years we could have been friends. <laughs> and I think some of that's just sort of happening culturally. I mean, we see, we've seen this extreme now. Maybe we can embrace each other in a way that we couldn't. Uh, so I think enough of that's happened that we will probably get a President Biden out of it. And I sure as heck hope so. But I'm not at all convinced. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't, I, it may be a psychological defense mechanism, but I'm just not allowing myself to go there at all. And yeah. it, 
yeah. So I think that that, but when it comes to the actual understanding of each other and the real integration between the left and the right and the traditionals and postmoderns, particularly as they, you know, rip modernity apart, I don't think we're done with that yet. No, I think that's going to be a process. And, um, you know, one could say Claire Graves envisioned and saw this coming back in the 1950s. Yeah. That we would get to this place. Um, yeah. And he predicted a lot of the contours of the conflict, I think, pretty well. In what the, way, Cindy? In what way? Yeah, so, I mean, because I don't know his work like I know you do. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of Ken's and his meta-theoretical approaches, but I also really like to go deep into the theory. So when you're working what's happening in evolutionary consciousness right now, I think the place to be is in the theory rather than the meta theory. So, you know, you dive deeper when you go into the theory. And several pieces of his work have just come back to me for their genius. Um, one of which is the metaphor of the spiral, which means that by the time you get to yellow, which is the first of the second tier stages in his color system, in the Don Beck. It, this is Ken Wilber's teal in aqua. But in the spiral, there's some really significant differences. So the spiral image means that yellow stands directly above beige. It has musical harmony, core resonance with beige. It arises when survival issues arise. And so the survival issues that we're confronting right now include, of course, COVID, climate change, social disruption that threatens to tear us apart. Um, you know, like how many things have to come up to threaten our continuation before it can stress out this first tier worldview sufficiently, like they don't have the complexity to hold it, so that you get this sort of breakdown breakthrough. Yeah. The breakthrough's not guaranteed, but the breakdown has to happen previous to the breakthrough. And so none of the first tier levels from beige through green can handle the complexity of the situation. And because they can't, they're terrified. And because they're terrified, they attack each other. Yeah. Now, the other piece that's really helpful to know about his model is that he alternates between me systems, all about me, my needs, and the we systems, the systems that focus on the community. All the cool colors are focused on communal, and all of the warm colors are focused on me, 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 what do I want, what do I need? So you have beige, red, and orange are all about me. Orange capitalism, of course, being extreme version of that in terms of finances, red being an extreme version of that in terms of power. And then you have the communitarian impulse, which starts at purple. Purple will have its resonance at turquoise. So the base survival and the need for the we to come back into our connection with each other and connection with the planet, just like purple had a tribal instinct and a connection with nature that we often think of as indigenous spirituality, that resonance will occur at turquoise and we will reconnect with nature at a much higher level of complexity and we will see ourselves embedded in and part of nature as opposed to having dominion over yeah. nature or even at green where we see ourselves as the hero rescuer of nature right. it's a right. bigger story than that yeah. um, so those two pieces the 
the fact that each, like yellow is directly above beige and turquoise is directly above purple on the spiral, and the me-we oscillation are really important pieces of the Claire Graves model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can definitely see that happening. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly at the cutting edge, you know, as I see it, our cultural center of gravity is more moving from an orange to a green. I'm seeing us as really entering a deeper green, if you will, as a culture with, of course, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, you know, a new sensitivity to inequality and all of that sort of thing. Uh, just more of a communal economy where I really am my brother's keeper. There really isn't something that is offensive about the yachts and the castles and the lifestyles of people who have, you know, hundred. somebody was telling me that Jeff Bezos is this short, this far away from becoming a trillionaire, which means that he'll have a thousand billion dollars. That's insane, isn't it? Yeah. And then there are people who, well, first of all, people who just can't function. They're actually not good in the modern world. They need support. They just, and they're ne never going to be. And they don't want to be. And I think that there's a new sensitivity to that that's just the way it is. And if you have an evolutionary view, it's like people will grow under their own power. We don't have to make people grow. We don't have to fix people who aren't as functional as we want them to be. But we do have to take care of them. Not to mention the people who work a 40-hour week uh, in a minimum wage job. These are functional people, but they still can't afford a two-bedroom apartment in most cities in America. So, we so that kind of thing, that kind of sense, that feels like a moral sensitivity of green that is coming on. You know, of course, the cutting edge is working at integral and teal and turquoise or yellow and turquoise, but that's the big pig in the python to me. Yes, the, the big breakthrough at yellow is in systems thinking, where green is beginning it, they are, um, this will be my opinion as opposed to any official spiral dynamic theory, but my opinion is that green gets too self-righteous and emotionally connected to particular solutions and particular enemies. For example, making an enemy out of the oil industry. Yep. You know, you can't have a coherent conversation about how would we transition to clean energy with most people. It's just oil bad, coal bad, clean energy good. And if you try to have a broader, more systemic conversation about, I love the idea of wind energy, where's all that metal coming from? And let's talk about the ethics of the mining situation as well. Um, where are all these batteries coming from? Where's all the lithium for these batteries coming from? Let's look at the next level out. Yep. And you know, as long as we're going to need oil and natural gas, do you want responsible orange employers who adhere to blue rules and regulations around worker safety and non-pollution producing the oil and gas? Or do you want to just blow up the whole capitalist system and get rid of all of those oil companies and get rid of all of those coal companies, which means third world countries will be running at a red level the energy companies of the old system while we transition to the new system. So I think that's a level of complexity that demands yellow. Yeah. And it demands a little bit more Vulcan logic, like you know, my friend, Mr. <laughs> <Fox>. <laughs> I do. It, I was just thinking, Cindy, the last time we talked on Zoom, I think we talked by phone occasionally, but 
was when you did the, the, the episode about Star Wars and Star Trek with yes. Corey and me. And it's just one of my personal favorites, I have to say. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, folks, check it out on the Daily Evolver. Yeah, I think Star Trek is really interesting because it, to me, I describe it as the vision board I've been holding since I was 12 years old of the vision of the future that I believe we can live into. And it was Roddenberry who created it. It was his vision board as well. And he was creating it during the 1960s when the civil rights era was threatening to tear our country apart. Well, here we are again in a new civil rights era threatening to tear our country apart. What's the vision board look like for when we get to the other side of this? Yeah. And uh, I think it's really interesting that Star Trek as a franchise has been so powerfully reinvigorated in the last, you know, five to 10 years. It's just speaks to the vision that Roddenberry put yeah. out there and the hunger for that vision, the just people starving to believe that we will get past this in a constructive way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very inspiring. Mm -hmm. So what are you seeing uh, with our fe fellow integralists or conscious evolutionaries online? What groups and what are they, what are they fighting about or thinking about or what's going on? Well, I'm probably not the best person to describe what they're fighting about because I get bored of that so quickly. I just tune out and change channels. You know, it's like, you know, if you guys are going to get into the weeds and argue about nits and gnats of integral theory, it's almost becomes like king of the hill stuff, thumping the chest. You know, I know more about integral than you know, and I'm going to show up. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I got real work to do in the world. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> yeah. um, in terms of the people I am most intrigued by. I'm intrigued by people who can hold polarity and complexity and not degenerate into either or or smack talking people. So, you know, I kind of got off Twitter for a long time because there was so much smack talking going on. Um, I'm interested in people who want to look at Black Lives Matter, not from the it's good or it's bad, but in what ways is it good and in what ways is it potentially leading us back into some of the frailties of toxic green? And can we pay attention to what's desperately needing to be attended to about systemic racism without falling back into, and I hear it discussed as critical race theory. I am not an academic, so I can't vouch for like that theory. But I can tell you when I, I've been doing a lot of work for the last four years trying to educate myself on racism and to work with my church on trying to investigate for ourselves what does beloved community look like? How can we really tear down our old world views and come to see each other with the lens of love as we intend, as we say we intend? Like, can we do that? and how much programming we have to get through, especially white people, but even people who are African-American have been programmed in so many negative ways. So like, how can we tear down these stereotypes and how can we break through? And I have noticed, I started this really in earnest about four years ago, that there's a, a mean white liberal thing that worries me. And there's two kinds of white liberals that worry me. The white liberal who knows nothing but assumes they're already awakened to the issues of race, but if you were to bring up some common experience that black people might have, like being followed in a store by the security people just because of the color of their skin, they, they, are you sure, are you sure you weren't taking that personally? Like you'll hear those kinds of 
um, which means you haven't been attending, you haven't been listening, you haven't been around, you haven't been friends with enough black people to understand their lived experience. So I'll claim guilty to that. Raised in a white bubble, did not have enough black friends to really understand. So that's the first kind of worrisome white liberal. The second kind is the one that starts to figure out that racism is real and now wants to be a white savior, wants to be the one that's leading the charge, um, teaching everybody what to do, telling black people what to do, um, and reprimanding white people rather than educating them. And I see this taking place with this sort of woke competition, like, you can't say that word. That word's wrong. You should know that word's wrong. Why don't you know that word's wrong? It's like someone brand new to this conversation who's beginning their education does not need the shame and blame treatment. You'll just send them out of the room and then the people who leave the room, oh, well, that's white fragility for you. See, I told you those people are fragile. Um, I'm really interested in what's gonna make change that sticks. Mm -hmm. I think there's so much ego investment in this wokeness competition that, you know, I'm the most white, woke white person around and I'm going to prove it. It's a showing off. It's egoic. It's mm -hmm. not love. Right. And so to me, I want love in the world. I want stuff that works. Yeah. I don't want to just feel all this love. I want practical love. Like what's going to make change? So those are the conversations I really want to engage in. People who are willing to cry and be upset with the way they were miseducated by our system, but then get past that. It's not all about you having your tears. Have your tears, but then let's go to the next stage. What's the replacement information mm -hmm. you need to put in your brain? You got bad stuff? Okay, fine. Let's put replacement information in there and let's figure out how to partner with people of color in ways that we can make change. They need us on board because we still have a disproportionate amount of the power, but we can't tell them what they need. Like if you would just act more white, you would figure out your life. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I know you're working on that and you have been working with your church. And what is it, it's a Unitarian Universalist? Uh, no, in Unity, Houston. I get confused. Uh, Unity. I'm sorry, yeah, Unity in Houston. Yeah. And um, so what are you seeing and uh, what is working and what is that next stage? So what's been working is authentic conversations inside a safe container. And the people who come to the church, we, we do have a diverse congregation, I'm happy to say. And I feel so blessed that the black people who have been coming to the conversations with white people are forgiving and open to educating us and open to being changed themselves. Um, real role models of exemplary human beings. Wow. And they have been willing to listen you know, and I would say for all the white people who showed up, they've done an excellent job of shutting up. Like the first job of a white person is shut up and listen to what the black person is telling you. Really listen, really seek to understand. Um, and, th and that worked really well the first few weeks that we started this intense dialogue group. And then they started saying, when are you guys gonna say something? Cause it looked like we're just watching them, like we're not engaging. This is part of the cultural difference I find that so many white people have been trained into whatever you do, don't be rude. 
So this terror of saying the wrong word, like we're all, I'm not saying anything, you say something, I'm not talking, you talk, you know? Um, until finally they're like, well, you guys need to say something. How do you feel about this? And the first night we got confronted with that, I remember saying something like, I'm appalled. I'm just distressed. I don't know what I don't know, but I know this is wrong. And that emotional energy was what was needed for me and from other white people in the room. We didn't need to have the perfect words. We needed to have an open heart. And that was probably... You, you didn't need to have the right words. You needed to have what? Open heart. O open heart. And see, from my sort of Vulcan nature, I want to figure it out cognitively and analyze it. But what I came to realize is it's good to do that. It's good to think and to read and to get information. But the most important thing I could give people was the gift of my openness to learning and to loving and to crying and to... I had days when I was so upset, my hands were shaking, you know, when I would realize something that I had not realized before. And when they see genuineness, the people who are in the circle, we mostly sat in circle who were black and would see the white people giving of their hearts. I think it made friendships that I will cherish for the rest of my life. And I had to be willing to sit there and hear them be angry about stuff and say, and, and in the black community, expression of anger is so much more acceptable than it is in the white community. Yeah. And, and we're so quick to retract from it. And we make it personal, you know, like I didn't do it. I, you know, I never owned slaves. I, um, yeah, I didn't right. do it, but I am part of a system that does it. I've benefited from being white. And I've done a lot of naively racist things not even knowing I was doing them, something as simple as averting my eyes when a black person approaches, not granting them eye contact, you know? Oh, my simple goodness gracious. Like yeah. I know. Um, one of the most worrisome trends I have seen in the training programs trying to help white people wake up to the problems that we face in trying to make our society more fair is demanding that white people claim themselves to be racist as in i would have to say i am a racist i understand there is a logic to that but it is toxic first of all it sets up a huge backlash it puts the instructor in the role of having to browbeat some of the students um, the instructor gets to be the good white person it's the hero role for the white person again um, and I just spiritually have a problem with saying I am followed by a negative word. You know, it's yes. affirming a negative. Yeah. Now, what I will own is I have racist programming. I have been programmed by a system to believe certain things subconsciously or consciously that I'm carrying around. It's the malware in my system. And it is my job to run the anti-malware program all the time and to find it and to own it and to root it out as much as I possibly can. But I'm not going to create for myself an image of myself as a racist as if it's a permanent condition. Yeah. And this is where states and stages can be helpful. I think we can be triggered and have racist states. We can be triggered into a fear of the black man moment where we recoil from a black man walking down the street towards us. And then we feel that state arise. 
and we run our anti-malware program and go, wait a minute, if he was white, how would you be reacting right this minute? Oh, I'd just be walking down the sidewalk. Okay then, just walk down the sidewalk. Yeah. Um, furthermore, I think there's a stage of the process of awakening where you, at the beginning, are in heavy denial. I'm not a racist, I'm a good person. I don't wanna take that away from somebody because they believe themselves to be a good person is the motivator for their change. So why would I take that away from them? Yes, you wanna be a good person. I affirm that with you. Now let's look at better ways to be a good person. Yeah. So I have a significant issue with how some of this training is conducted. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah and I, I think you just threaded the needle beautifully there, Cindy, because um, we're gonna have to find our way forward in this kind of work. Yes. And, uh, and we're gonna you know, careen our way forward. There's no doubt about that and that is happening. Mm -hmm. But I love even going back to what you're talking about with your groups at your church, how, you know, and I guess I knew this, but it really, the, the key to it is, is really just seeing and being seen, you know, and really opening those veils and penetrating the conditioned mind yes. and seeing another human being behind those eyes mm -hmm. and all of the, you know, I always think of what Jogam Trumpa said about when you really see another person, the only acceptable response or the only appropriate response is, oh. I love you. Yeah. It's hard being a human being. There you are. Here I am. Yeah. And, um, and that's, that's where we meet, ultimately. And, and, there, and, and, and part of what that includes, in addition to the just awesomeness of it, is a revealing of ourselves, a ability to get it wrong. It's, it's almost like how we are with our best friends and the people most intimate. That's where we can show our anger. I, that's where we can show the worst parts of ourselves. And that's, it's, a, it's a marker of intimacy that we can do that. Yes. And, and I, I agree with you. I think a lot, a lot of the white culture has a, you know, a little too much control, self-control. I think, I actually think, and, and I'm talking modernity in general. Right. Um, and that's, I think, a lot of confusion around race is really just development because I'm also going to recoil from a biker dude coming at me on the sidewalk. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we conflate race and development. In the sacred world to come, we're gonna be a lot more rude and crude by today's standards because we'll be more intimate with each other. We'll have more of the human being online. And that includes that, you know, all parts of ourselves, not being gripped by them, not being run by them, but as, you know, art forms in a way. Right. <laughs> Yes, and I, I think messy is an appropriate word for this yeah. sort of coming to see each other and be present with each other. And this super uptight, white way I was raised, I don't know about anybody else who's white who's listening to this, but you know, the sort of where does the fork go and where does the knife go and when do you do the napkin and don't put your elbows on the table and you don't talk about race, you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics, you don't talk about sex, you don't blah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we're down to the weather people. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, but when you get real with each other, trust just grows so fast. One yeah. of the um, 
fascinating pieces of feedback I received from one of the black women in our circle. And we've been having these conversations for a couple of years now, so we've really become trusting of each other. At the beginning, she used to say, how could you not know to me and all the white people in the room? How could you not know? And as we peeled back one layer after another of white people going, you're kidding me. Oh my God, I'm sorry, that's terrible. And then the, you know, the next thing where we go, you're kidding me, I had no idea. Well, one of the women mentioned there was a movie where the baby was raised in the dome. What was his name? Um, in the bubble or? The, no, the guy that, oh gosh, it'll come to me in a moment. The Truman Show. Oh, The Truman Show, yes. Yes, yeah. uh, where he was purchased, he was adopted by a corporation and raised in a bubble. And in that bubble, everything was white, there was one black family in the town. Everything was just a certain way. Tidy houses, tidy streets, you know, boring as hell, but it was, you know, just one way. And someone made the analogy that it was like being raised on the Truman Show. And, you know, I started referring to that and referring to it as being raised in the white bubble. And some of my black friends started going, you guys really didn't know. I go, we didn't have black friends. And we were isolated and insulated, um, mostly in white schools, white neighborhoods, white churches. The most segregated hour of the week is the Sunday 10 a.m. service. Um, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And here I am, a nice white liberal, right? Very progressive thinker who had no clue what that meant. So I think trust was built in both directions where they're like, okay, we get it. You're really ignorant. Now, what else do you need to know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Now I'm going to tell you what you need to know. I believe that you want to know. I believe that you don't know. Now let me educate you. <laughs> yeah, right on. Yeah. No, I, I did my uh, baptism, if you will, back in when I was at the Masters of Divinity program at Naropa back in the day. And there was a lot of uh, emergent social justice issues coming up and a lot of, a lot of discomfort. Um, I like, I mean, I didn't like it at the time, obviously, you know, where I don't understand and yet I'm not allowed to ask and, uh, you know, it's my job to figure it out. And hey, yeah, yeah, I was befuddled for months and longer, perhaps. And Boulder's and, not a hotbed of diversity, so you're not going to have a lot of opportunities no. for that. Yeah. In these diversity training programs, when I think of my right wing friends, even my integral uh, righty friends, and there's, I have a few, they're so allergic to that whole sort of, you know, having to look at that and seeing it as real, that um, one of the ways I think about it is that every stage of development comes online with a certain kind of fundamentalism, where you have to say certain things, think certain, certain things, and if you don't, you're not okay, and including modernity which basically, you know, as I've often said, try arguing your point at a business meeting because God spoke to you in a burning bush. <laughs> See how that goes. You know, so every stage has that. And, and I think of even my Christian indoctrination as a kid, where I learned about how God sent his son Jesus to be crucified on the cross to assuage his own sense of justice and our sins and that's and love me or I'll throw you in hell. And, you know, I think Jesus now in retrospect, what was that? But at the same time, it did initiate me into 
a world of God in a way. And so a lot of these initiations are not pretty. And yeah. the initiation into, you know, the, the realization, just for, forget it, anything other than just outcomes, that we live in a system that has given off racist outcomes, racial outcomes at least, you know, right. however, you, you know, by terms of wealth and health, jobs. And at the same time, there's been an amazing emergence of a black middle class, upper class. Um, I could argue that we are one of the least racist countries in the world. Racism is a very deep thing. But um, both of those things are, I think both of those things are true. And I think in some ways what we're seeing in terms of the culture wars in general is the gratitude to America story is now meeting the grievance towards America story. And those are the two poles. And we just had this story, Cindy, you and me, you know, yeah. the founding fathers and the, all the good stuff. And the, the grievance story, a lot of people just have the grievance story. Mm-hmm. And you can see why. Right. Absolutely. But an integration of the two is what is called for here. Absolutely. And of course, Barry Johnson's polarity management work is invaluable as we think through these things. The polarity that often comes up in these conversations is one that he would call tough and tender. And I often pose this in programs when I'm teaching, what's the best way to raise your children? Should you be tough or should you be tender? And oftentimes there is a parent or a caretaker in each position. So one caretaker is a big believer in being tender and forgiving, it's okay, honey, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it for you, whatever. And then you have the tough parent who is like, you know, extremely strict disciplinary and all about consequences, all about your, you're on your own kids. You need to figure this out. If you're being bullied at school, you get back in there and you fight for yourself. You know, um, when we display the full polarity map, the, his four quadrants are not Ken's four quadrants, but his model has four quadrants, which are two upsides and two downsides. You see the upside of the tender parent and you see the upside of the tough parent and the downside of each. And it's like inhaling and exhaling. You realize you can't do one without the other without getting a negative outcome. And the inhale versus exhale, if you treat it as an either or and you insist on only inhaling or only exhaling, either way you're fainting or dying. Yeah. And if you want to raise healthy kids, you can't pick one pole. You must do the both and in appropriate proportion. And I think the same question of facing what we've done wrong and owning what we've done well is a both end. You know, have we made mistakes? Can we be brutally honest with ourselves? Can we be authentically reflective? And can we be authentically grateful? Of course we can. We've just created this, you know, if you, if you criticize America, you need to leave it. You know, I love America and therefore I criticize America because America is not fully actualized yet. Yeah. 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 You've you've been doing some really great work, Cindy. Are you teaching now? I am. I'm I'm doing some work. I've sort of committed myself to the education of the well-intended white person who wants (laughs) to understand this. (laughs) All right. Um, That's me. Because, and it's me, you know, it's like you teach what you need to learn, right? So if I set myself up to teach a class, then I'm going to study the heck out of that content, get ready for the class. So it's good for me. Um, I use Ken's program, Ken's four quadrant model at the end of like, okay, what do we do? Because everybody's like, 
I am very upset about all this, what do we do? If you don't take a four quadrant aqua approach to the problem, you will not get a sustainable solution. And so what would a four quadrant approach to racism look like? And we look at if I as an individual commit to actions in each of the four quadrants, what would that look like? Well, I can commit to my interior work, which is rooting out my malware, working on my own psychology, working on my own education. I can upper right quadrant work on my individual behaviors. Very important that I'm not committing microaggressions or major aggressions. I can work on those behaviors. On the lower left culture quadrant, when I engage in Facebook, I'm also engaging in lower left quadrant culture change. I am attempting to influence the culture. I am attempting to influence the culture when I teach. I am attempting to influence the culture when I speak with my grandchildren. You know, it's like, how, in what ways can I contribute to the interior of the collective waking up? And then in what ways can I contribute to systemic change? And of course, marching and voting matter, but so do more deep dives into what does fair voting look like? Where have we gerrymandered? Where do we need to stop doing that? Where do we need to have social systems that are appropriate without being enabling and creating codependency? The tough parent fears social systems that create codependency and weaken people. That is a legitimate fear, one that Green often dismisses. That's a really important fear. How do we create social systems that allow for a really equal starting point? Not always equal outcomes. I get weary of this argument. You just care about equal outcomes. I care about our stated ideals, which include liberty, freedom, justice, fairness, and our starting points are not fair. And our handicapping system, like you know, you handicap horses or you handicap whatever, we put this bag of rocks on the back of every black person that launches and say, okay, now run the marathon. Well, let's just get rid of the backpack. I'm not saying that you need to guarantee every black person's gonna finish first in the race so that they have self-esteem and you know, all that stuff we made those mistakes with in school with social promotions and school systems so that people wouldn't feel discouraged. You can over reward kids. You need to challenge people, but challenge people when they have a fair starting place, you know? So wow. I think the polarities are not that hard if you can get yourself into that yellow turquoise space of thinking about it. It's yeah, when yeah. we lock into first tier worldviews that we cannot see a way forward. Well, and they're so magnetic and they're so yeah. everywhere, you they, know. Yeah. But and yes, I mean, at some point, uh, I always think boredom is the great engine of evolution. They're boring. <laughs> you know, yes, just, just one ideology over the other is boring. Yeah. Uh, but yes, Cindy, wow. I mean, I just actually do want to pause for a second. I feel like I just got a transmission. Wow. That's fantastic. And I, I really think you have so much of what actually needs to be next mm -hmm. in terms of how we think about this. And, you know, good old quadrant thinking. Yeah, that? the four you know. quadrants are brilliant. They're so helpful. Yeah. So with that said, uh, if somebody wanted to join you, mm -hmm. uh, where would they go? Um, well, Unity of Houston is where I do a lot of my work, and a lot of our work is through Zoom these days. So they can go to unityofhouston.org, and a, most of our programs are open to whoever wants to Zoom in and attend them. So that yeah. would be a way they could register for that. They could also just email me at cindy, C-I-N-D-Y, at deepchange.com. And uh, 
you know, I can point them in other directions. There are some wonderful programs I've found for people who want a deep dive. Um, a woman named Patty Dye, D-I-G-H, who is doing fantastic training programs for white people that are appropriately balanced. They're not like, you have to confess to being a racist kind of stuff. But yeah, they can email me or find me on Facebook. There's Cindy Wigglesworth is a weird name. I'm easy to find. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, regarding the Zoom uh, trainings through your Unity Church in Houston, mm -hmm. are people magnetizing to that from outside of the typical church community now that we are all Zoomy? We're having an increasing number of people show up who are of like mind, but not like geography. Yeah. So uh, they tend to be like unity people from another part of the country or somebody who is, you know, like-minded, liberal, interested, uh, or even not. We've had some people who are not that liberal, but they're genuinely interested. George Floyd woke a lot of people up. I mean, his soul made such a sacrifice, but what a gift he gave us with this two by four up the side of the head. Yeah. Um, God bless him seriously, God yeah. bless him. Oh, wow, God bless him indeed, and all of us, and you and your work, mm -hmm. um, which leads me to, I guess, one last question regarding God. So what happens when we die, Cindy? I'm just kidding. So, yeah, I'm happy to answer the question. <laughs> no, go for it. <laughs> um, my answer is I don't know. I have hunches, yeah. and I have a hunch that nothing is wasted in the universe, including my consciousness. So what that will look like, will it be an individuated consciousness called Cindy or will the drop merge back into the ocean? I don't know, but yeah. I don't think anything is wasted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's about where I am too. And I guess we'll find out or not. <laughs> exactly, and if there's nothing afterwards, I won't know and there we go. <laughs> Our God is a gnarly God, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that was the fastest 49 minutes I've spent in a while. <laughs> it's always so wonderful to talk with you. You are such a good listener. I have to give you snaps for great questions and powerful listening. So thank uh, you. Well, it's my great privilege to, to, to listen to what you're doing, Cindy. And I, like I said, I feel like I got a transmission and, and you never fail. I mean, you really are doing the work and you really are bringing new stuff into the world. And, you know, hallelujah. So, thank you, Brother Jeff. Always wonderful to talk to you. Thank you, Sister Cindy. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>